This is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. In this episode, this is a special episode, uh, as you might notice, we have three screens here. This is a guest splaining episode, and we're so excited to have with us Professor Dan Muller, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland. Um, professor Muller has written in a number of uh, popular articles, First Things, popular uh, productions, First Things, and others you might see. But most importantly, he has two books uh, and also academic journals and such. He has two books, though. Um, one is The Way of Bach, Three Years with the Man, the Music, and the Piano, which is a story, uh, it's a fascinating story about him learning to play Bach, particularly, and then think about the man and think about life in general. It's wide-ranging. And then what the topic of our discussion today is another book, Governing Least, A New England Libertarianism. So and I'd like to welcome Professor Moeller to our podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Professor Muller, um, we thought this is a political philosophy here. I'll show you first. The, they say don't judge a book by its cover, um, but that's too bad in your case because your book <laughs> here we go, has – it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely – you can't really see it here in the so – there we go. Okay. It's great. It's, it's just a fantastic piece of art. Sometimes you don't get covers, but it is – it's brilliant. It has – I mean I'm colorblind, but I think it's got some reds and oranges on the front of it. And – it just it's it does it draws one to agree with you right off the bat. I think did you did you design that or is that a sort I of? I worked uh... very hard on finding this. Uh, the editors wanted me to find an attractive picture of Walden Pond, which I would have been very excited about. But it just turns out Walden Pond not very photogenic, and so it's not. This is kind of very nice photograph of some Vermont hills or something. But uh, I, I thought it served the subject well. It does. It serves. It serves the subject very well. So it's it and and the book is uh, it's a book on political philosophy, and it's on a New England libertarianism, as it's called, which is your kind of a new position of libertarianism. But I thought we'd bring you on because Dominicans and I think the listeners are podcast and Americans in general. Part of being American is loving politics and feeling like we can talk about everybody with politics uh, at any given moment, at any given gas station, uh, on any given subject. So it's a very American thing to do and a Catholic thing, since we do care about politics in the Catholic world as well. So I thought we'd bring you on and talk about this a little bit, since it's fascinating. And just to give us a background here, your position in political philosophy is libertarianism. Could you just describe, maybe our viewers, they might know of some of it because of Rand Paul is generally described as libertarian or libertarian-ish. But what's what's libertarianism and what, what would our viewers uh, or listeners uh, know about it? Libertarianism is an easy to explain political philosophy because it mainly consists of minimalism. So libertarians are minimalists about the state. They want less of the government. They're skeptical about the government's capacity to arrange for the things we want society to do. Um, a good way of thinking about it is in terms of two different directions it points in two different facets of minimalism. So in one direction, libertarians want individuals to have the liberty to pursue the good life as they see it, and they don't want the government to interfere in order to shape the good life for you. So if you decide that the good life is gonna consist of listening to heavy metal music and worshiping the devil and smoking pot or something all day, 
you know, I don't recommend this, but the libertarian position is the government is not going to be authorized to break down your door and fix all that stuff for you. So when I explain this part of libertarianism to my undergraduate students, they get really excited. They love this. This sounds great. Uh, it's like, you know, no parents, no one's in charge. This sounds fantastic. And by contrast, social conservatives start to get worried and they feel like, oh, no, this, this doesn't sound good. Um, <laughs> we don't have the tools we need maybe to... Uh, reinforce, uh, you know, wise decisions about how to lead your life. And if you have strong substantive beliefs about what the good life consists in, then this part of libertarianism tends to kind of rub you the wrong way. So that's one direction that minimalism points to. Another direction is, and this is the part where my students start to get worried, it's not all gravy. It's not just um, individual liberty. It's also individual responsibility. So Another facet of libertarian minimalism is there's not going to be a gigantic bureaucracy that's going to ensure that if you ever get into trouble, you know, they will be there to make sure everything is always going uh, the right way for you. Libertarians are opposed to a giant welfare state that will ensure that you're always provided for. They emphasize individual responsibility for taking care of things. And this is the part where my undergraduate students get very concerned. They don't like this. This doesn't sound right. This doesn't feel right. I don't like this. Um, and economic conservatives, if those people still exist somewhere, uh, this is the part that they're more sympathetic to. Uh, so uh, this is sort of like a weird self-defeating presentation of libertarianism, I guess, but there's, there's kind of something to hate for everyone. <laughs> and, uh, I have this, you know, there, there are different spins people put on this. Some people, if you have a, a philosophy that's not super popular, one spin is, it really is popular. We're misunderstood. If you only understood it, you'd love us. Uh, that's kind of one spin. Um, but I have more of the like, honest, you know, embrace the hate kind of approach to life. So my, my view is, look, uh, <laughs> there are, in my opinion, very good reasons for this view, but there, there are difficult consequences that not everyone will love. You should be honest and upfront about that. And so I think when you think about these two different faces of libertarianism, you can see why it's controversial. You can see why it's a minority view in American politics. Yeah. So I think, yeah, listening to the, to your explanation and I, well, for what it's worth, it doesn't matter at all what I understood libertarianism <laughs> to be, but that see, at least I'm like, okay, I can nod my head and see like, yeah, that's fine. Makes sense as far as what I've understood. I, a question that I have, at least in situating the idea of libertarianism, and maybe Father Bonaventure mentioned your own understanding that with the New England libertarianism, so maybe this will transition over to that. Um, but like historically speaking, um, there is in in the country, I think when people hear libertarianism, they automatically think Tea Party kind of contemporary movement. Um, I guess where, where, and perhaps it's a giveaway with your book cover, uh, but historically where does liberty does libertarianism have like a place in american politics is it has it been kind of just a kind of fringe thing or small thing historically i guess where where could we situate the this school of political thought yeah i don't think libertarianism is well represented in the contemporary american scene so there there are figures like the the rand paul type people um, I don't particularly feel super sympathetic to the ways they tend to represent libertarianism. So I don't actually think this view is particularly well represented in the present. And 
if you think of the rise of the state as just a phenomenon, like this core part of the 20th century, what's happened politically in the 20th century, just the rise of the state. If you picture some chart of, you know, like GDP spending, if you just think of what the government has turned into, it's inevitable that libertarianism will end up being a somewhat fringe view because it's a minority position. It's not a super popular position. You're going to face opposition uh, in the one direction. You'll tend to turn off social conservatives in the other direction. You'll tend to turn off um, welfareists who object to anything, you know, the lollipops you might want to take away. So I, I don't actually, I'm comfortable with just saying that this is a minority position in American politics. Mm -hmm. You should think of it, in my opinion, like the people at Reason Magazine would, would hate me for saying this, I guess, but in my view, you're better off thinking of, the, of this as sort of like anarchism. It's not anarchism, okay? It's not, it's importantly different, but think of it as more like a sort of strange view like that, um, as opposed to, well, it's kind of like what Republicans think, only two notches to the left. I don't actually mm -hmm. think that's productive. So it's more useful to think of this as a sort of very different way of thinking about politics. And um, it's not really super useful, in my opinion, to try and situate it as like, you know, it's sort of like what the Republicans are doing, only like one step to the left or the right. Yeah, that's so I think that's that's a great transition um, because the, the originally the anarchy, you mentioned anarchy is that libertarianism in its classical kind of view um, you know, it, this is Robert Nozick's book in 1975, response to, this is show and tell apparently, um, response <laughs> to John Rawls' 1971, A Theory of Justice. I won't show that cover. Um, and Nozick produces the, the kind of manifesto of libertarianism, modern libertarianism, you could say. Um, and as you mentioned, there's, it might not be attractive to a lot of people or like people think it's attractive, but he has a particular way of arguing for it based upon individual rights and the inability. And so as you've just set out, I think beautifully, like the, you know, the downsides of the, the frustrations that some people might have with this, the dangers, um, New England libertarianism is your kind of take. I think it's a, it's a new way of arguing for a similar position, a sort of minimal state, as you say, um, with lots of individual liberty, but lots of responsibility. Um, so, but you've inserted yourself in, and uh, some reviewers, I think probably, I mean, I don't know who might have judged, but rightly called this the next, this is anarchy uh, state and utopia for the 21st century, that you've produced a book that is of that level, um, which is well argued. What, what makes your, so now you've you've given us a chance to say, well, I don't know, I'm suspicious about this. Now, what makes New England libertarianism attractive? What's your particular um, uh, coloring, you could say, to it? The deep question here is, what is it we disagree about? What is the point of disagreement between libertarians and their friends who have these more mainstream views? Nozick, who was a political philosopher who wrote this, this amazing book that I admire in the 1970s, thought that the point of disagreement was about individual rights. And he thought libertarians are committed to the super strong view. I, the morally all-powerful individual, have these you know, moral boundaries around me that you can never transgress. And because these moral rights are all-powerful, you can't touch me. How dare you? And because of this, you know, you, you get this kind of anti-collectivist view that's like super strong and, you know, anti-taxation and transfer and so on and so forth. So he thought that was the point of disagreement. If you look at figures like Hayek or Milton Friedman, they think the disagreement is about uh, how you understand the role of the market and how great the market is. And they, they you know, think they're 
mainstream views just underestimate how powerful a market is. If you think of Anne Rand, she had yet another twist on this that had to do with, you know, the kind of um, creative, innovative spirit of individuals and a, a certain contempt, I think, for the worse off, a sort of groveling social parasites. I, I, f I find those views mostly unappealing, and I don't think they correctly identify the point of disagreement. The D point of disagreement, in my view, is about reason and persuasion. Libertarians are the people, or should be the people, who put reason and persuasion at the core of social political disagreement and think that when we have disagreements about how to help the worse off, about what is the good life, the way we should settle those disagreements is through reason and persuasion. Don't like your neighbors listening to heavy metal, worshiping the devil? Convince them. Go out there. Make your argument. Persuade them, okay? Um, think that we should help the worse off? You go help them. Think you, I should be helping you? I'm open to it. I'm, you know, guilt me into it. You can probably succeed. Uh, let's have an argument. Let's talk about it. Let's reason together. Let's figure it out, okay? You might think, well, in a democracy, isn't that what we're doing? You kind of form coalitions and vote and the majority wins. But key point here, when the government comes asking, when we're talking about the arena of the state, the state is not asking nicely, okay? Um, no matter how democratic, the government is not asking nicely, okay? When the government suggests, you know, you may not pursue the good in some way or another way. Heavy metal records shall not be for sale or you're going to pay your taxes to, you know, do this thing. They're not making a friendly suggestion. Think of it the other way around. Suppose it were just asking nicely, all right? Your proposal is, wouldn't it be a better world if we helped the worse off by doing X, Y, Z? Let's have a voluntary club and you make impassioned arguments. Our, our disagreement would fall away, right? Libertarians wouldn't object to any of that. Libertarians don't, you know, I, I don't have any contempt for the worse off or the poor or anything like that. I'm all in favor of helping the poor. You could probably guilt me into contributing. Uh, I have many opinions about the good life. I, I think many pursuits of the good life are wrongheaded and insane and crazy. That's not the point of disagreement. The point of disagreement is how should we resolve these differences? And the libertarian says the answer is not by getting out your pitchfork and showing up on your neighbor's doorstep, that's crazy. The libertarian says, the way you resolve these disagreements is through reason and persuasion. Uh, and just very, very briefly on the New England element, what I'm trying to do is redirect people's attention from people like Ayn Rand, whom I'm not very sympathetic to, but whom you associate with libertarianism, to this other tradition, uh, writers like Emerson and, and uh, Thoreau, who emphasize self-reliance. They emphasize not shifting your burdens onto other people, resolving your disagreements through argument, uh, through rational persuasion that you that's emphasized in this uh, New England tradition uh, that's descended from the Puritans. So I think of that as just a very different approach to identifying what separates libertarians from other political philosophers. Yeah, I think the it's uh, that approach the 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 persuasion and reason is of course. Um, Dominicans, I think, are deeply sympathetic to this, and I'm listening because we're order of preachers, and because of how we think the people make decisions and how they live their lives it is by the we're kind of a version of intellectualism, you could say. So instead of voluntarism of appealing to the will and commanding and demanding from the pulpit about what's bad and you shouldn't do this, and kind of in a sense aggress, you know, what have you, um, we believe in per you present the truth 
right? And then the will, you know, the will follows along. Now, we can debate whether that actually happens, but at least as Dominicans, card-carrying members, we're supposed to say this is how it works, um, so that we we present the truth to the intellect, the intellect wants to, as long as sin isn't bothering it too much, um, wants to desire the good, and the truth and the good are, of course, convertible. So if you give the right truth, people will be directed towards it in a way and persuaded by the truth because that's deeply ingrained in them is this desire for truth. So your New England libertarianism, I don't want to call it Dominican libertarianism, but um, <laughs> it has, Feel free. At least, at least stylistically, it has a very like Dominican intellectualist ring to it that we treat people as if they're, they're rational and that they are free and therefore they work by persuasion and through preaching of a fashion. So I think that's on stylistically. Now, let's get to the fun part. Oh, Father Jacob Burchand, please. I, we were probably going the same place. I think the, what, what you just said, Father Bonaventure, of treating people as rational and reasonable, capable of being persuaded and thinking reasonably sounds great. As you were explaining all of that, it's like in, this, in, in line <laughs> with Father Bonaventure, I'm nodding. Yeah, I like, I like, makes sense, makes sense. But then I think the obvious or the initial kind of pushback is, well, is that the case? Uh, you know, is and I think what Father Bonaventure said um, with uh, towards the top of the episode of kind of feeling the sort of Catholic guilt of, of uh, you know, saying, yeah, this is great. So let's let's kind of chase after it. the questions of like common good and pursuit of virtue and forming in those sort of things. And then in kind of the broken, fallen world where people don't seem to be reasonable, where people don't seem to actually be pursuing virtue. Um, so I guess like the way I would frame the question, maybe Father Bonamitra would frame it differently, but um, what then of of sort of leading people uh, or putting up sort of tighter boundaries for people to pursue the good, to pursue virtue, to uh, yeah, go after those those things. Um, where Where is the kind of balance in, in, in that to give tools so as to use? I don't know. Father Bonaventure is kind of shaking his head a little bit. He might have a different way of approaching the uh, question, but no, let yeah. Professor Moore, you take this, take this away. I, I'm, I'm, well, let yeah. me start on the, on just the, the first point. Uh, I'm a, I'm sort of a, a low budget army chapel Protestant. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, we, we would, I grew up overseas and the English language services were in these super low budget army things where they wanted it to be so common denominator that they wouldn't have to pay for like anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not quite uh, Dominican, but <clears throat> I've always thought that um, there's this, to me, somewhat demoralizing pessimism in some of the Protestant traditions. So when I look at Luther or Calvin, it's like unbelievably pessimistic. <laughs> about the capacity to persuade and for reason. And it's not just a sort of, to me, reasonable, well, reason isn't going to, there are fundamental questions where reason won't help you. Uh, so like in philosophy, there are these problems of skepticism where I'm, I, I'm just, I, I just don't think reason will solve it. And there's like a role for faith. It's not that it's sort of way more pessimistic than even that the sort of fundamental doubt that um, there's any role for Athens, so to speak, as alongside your Jerusalem. And it's just sort of like very depressing to me, actually, when I read the history uh, of, of some of those early um, Reformation figures. And so I think there's a kind of optimism that accompanies libertarianism that's in part temperamental and that's hard to sort of uh, you know, supply if you fundamentally lack this and reject this because you have a sort of Calvinistic rejection of it. You know, so I, I do have this kind of fundamental optimism that, you know, reason isn't always going to win and reason needs a lot of assistance in terms of the institutions to succeed. 
but I have this long-term optimism in the power of arguments and the power of reason to win. In the short term, the sword is going to win. I'll be chopped in half. I accept that. In the long term, you know, and every year I sit there and I teach Socrates' apology, and I, I really think long and hard about this. In the long term, um, I have this confidence in uh, reason and persuasion to prevail. And I think of that as a, a deep association with libertarianism. Now, you, you do need help from institutions, and libertarians should uh, be champions of those institutions. And this maybe brings us a little closer to the, uh, the, the question Father Jake was asking earlier about the contemporary political scene. Um, when it comes to institutions like uh, free speech, for example, um, those are very important institutions for libertarians, because if you don't have them, then uh, you know the power of reason and persuasion is going to is going to be less, and it's going to be harder to make your argument. And those are things that do bring libertarians closer to sort of contemporary debates, and where I think they have a stake, and they have political allies and enemies, and so on and and so forth. I would say, yeah, and that's um, I. <laughs> To, uh, if I was responding to Father Jacob Bertrand, which I wouldn't, of course, because he's a good man and we love him, um, uh, this this sounds like again the, the minimalism and the uh, focus on freedom and all of this. It sounds it could be dangerous. Look out! But um, I think there's a deeply Kantian aspect to this in morality or deontology, as people might know. Now, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to a Kant scholar um, doing my doctorate in Kant, everything looks like Kant. But there's a sense of well. If this is just how to treat humans, this is that's just what we do. If if we if we respect humans' freedom and their and their intelligence, and as long as we don't have a total depravity view, such you know, if we think this is what humans are and that persuasion works, and it turns out that we will get some bad results because people will freely choose against this, but to get good results, we have to develop a coercive state to force, in a sense, we say, okay, everyone, sit down. And let's let's talk about this, and uh, you'll come to the right decisions. And they say, "Nah." We say, "Okay, cool." Well, the tanks are outside, so now we're going to just enforce the right decision. I think there's a sense to the libertarianism that says that would be a that would be bad. That would be getting the right the right ends for the wrong through the wrong means, and it would be an injustice to to humanity. So that even if this view in the short term of libertarianism has the necessary con it has consequences such that yeah heavy heavy metal or you know swedish death metal or something is played more often than it ought to be that's just a part of humanity now the question i have though um so is, is um that sounds good catholics are tend to be this is the guilty conscience part right uh because we tend to talk we haven't talked about this yet there's this little phrase which you might think oh that doesn't mean anything is common good so Marco Rubio put out this common good capitalism. There's been this whole debate about the common good and kind of, I don't know if you keep up with integralism and Catholics in sense of the Catholic state. Yeah, that's a weird thing we think about in America, but a drive to the sense that the, the sum of the part, the whole is more than the sum of the parts, for instance, in the society, such that the common good of the nation, of the polity is kind of like the baseball team. It's not just the individual members, but it's the, there's a team spirit, a, a geist, if we want to go Hegelian, whatever. Um, now, libertarianism, as far as I understand it, um, is suspicious of common good magic words and tends to think of it as the aggregate of the individual goods. Is that a fair characterization? And how do you think that plays in with why Catholics or some might be 
why people might be suspicious of this and why they oughtn't not be? Well, a few things. So I do think libertarianism is easily parodied as this sort of desert island view, individuals as these islands and sort of indifference to the group, um, the sort of rugged John Wayne individualism and sort of lack of interest in these um, in these important collective goods. But I, I don't think that that, again, is the point of disagreement. The real point of disagreement, you're, you're welcome to say that there are all these important collective goods that are, that are significant and it's not just me, the individual. You're welcome to all of that. The point of disagreement is, do you see yourself as entitled to bring about those good things through force? Okay, When your neighbors are not on board is the right procedure to show up on their doorstep with your pitchfork. That's the crazy thing. Okay, The point of disagreement is not do you care about poor people? Do you care about the elderly? Do you care about the spiritual values of the group or any of those things? Let all that be true. There's no point of disagreement there. Libertarians can accept all of that. The only thing we disagree about is, are we going to bring that stuff about through force? Are we going to bring it about by, you know, engaging in some greedy struggle over the levers of power? And then we grab the lever first and we get to pull it while shoving the other person out of the way or something. Or is it a long-term engagement in which we respect the people around us as individuals, we respect that they have to, in the end, choose for themselves, and we're going to make arguments, we're going to use reason and persuasion and trust, we're going to have some confidence that our views are powerful enough, that they're persuasive enough, that they will work, that they will be successful in the long term. So I would relate this back to this point about long-term, short-term. Um, and you know, not getting lost in these sort of short-term squabbles and who's on top now and are we being beaten down by the mean people who have the levers of power. Think of this as more of a long-term game. If you doubt this, again, think about, you know, I teach Socrates every single year, you know, like think about who won those arguments in the long term. Um, another dimension that's worth just putting on the table here think about economic history. My book, this, this may sound strange given what we've discussed so far, but the book spends a lot of time discussing economic history um, and what has made us a prosperous society, what has worked and what has, hasn't. Uh, economic history is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating, wonderful fields. I, I urge your, your viewers to uh, you know, read some of these books, read uh, Farewell to Alms by Gregory uh, Clark, read Angus Deaton, um, The Great Escape. And you know, what makes us a prosperous country is not something that someone did yesterday or is the tax rate going up slightly or down slightly or anything like that. The long-term trend, if you picture some graph, you know, measuring GDP per capita or something, and you see this crazy spike uh, following the 1800s or something, what's made us prosperous in the long term has not been uh, anything about short-term disagreements about policy or... Um, anything about redistribution or these arguments about the collective versus the individual or anything. It's been these very powerful forces involving things like capitalism, um, the capacity to innovate, technical development, technology transformation, things like that, that over the long term have functioned to make us prosperous, to take us from you know a life expectancy in our 40s, which was not long ago, that was our great-great-grandparents, um, to where we are now, those are very long-term trends that we should have our eye on, that we should defend, that we should fight for, uh, and that I, I see libertarianism in, 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 the, in the, we should be uh, championing as opposed to worrying about these kind of short-term squabbles where we're losing out to our political enemies. 
Yeah, and that's that's such a good point of the seeing the bigger picture because I think in today's society we're so focused on the moment, everything. I mean, the news cycle is so quick. You can deal with any there's plenty of crises out there, but don't worry, you can wait through them if you just wait for 24 hours or 48 hours and people forget everything. And so, while we're more connected with our political decisions, it's at the same point we don't think about what they actually are and what they mean. And putting it in a historical perspective, I want to come back to this just to finish finish this um when when you said i you know this is a newer view or something it always it reminded me and you you make this point with the economics of it's really an heir or a successor to adam smith the kind of smithian view of things as far as i can tell because in the wealth of nations people read that as a kind of economic treatise well no one reads it it's a thousand pages long <laughs> 70 i mean i've read i've read the whole thing you know even the 70 pages on the corn trade um but very few people <laughs> read it but but it is not just a, like a free market kind of here's how supply and demand works and the thing about a pin factory. It's he says the wealth of the nation is the is the opulence of those who are of of all, especially those least amongst us. That it's it's his vision is a moral vision of the of the political economy such that everyone is able to raise up. And it took a while to get that going. And we just we just assumed that everyone's been free market capitalists and political liberals, as you could say, in the sort of tr traditional way, libertarians. But the view seems very similar to it's it's a sort of across the pond, Walden's and otherwise, um, from this more, you could say, compassionate uh, libertarianism or bleeding heart libertarianism or something like this in this tradition. So um, it's it's a beautiful and it's and I love it. It's that's persuasive moral vision. It's not about your rights and you know what people can't take from you so much as what you ought to do and how you ought to get things done so if you believe something you need to persuade people and respect respect them and that's so it's great so um as we come to the end here uh this it's been fantastic and our our, our listeners hopefully you'll uh, look up professor dan muller on his uh, he has a beautiful website you could tell you're an art you, you believe in the arts too don't you you have a sense an aesthetic sensibility to yourself very much so. That's another slight disagreement I have. Libertarians sometimes have this kind of blinkered, you know, market technical obsession, and they're not always that excited about the uh, the rest of the humanities. But I very much am. So uh, when I when I teach this sort of thing, it's not all Adam Smith. There's some Adam Smith, but you know, you should look at you know the arts. You should look at like Dutch painters and how you can see prosperity, you know, occurring on their canvases uh, and. Uh, Yes, Bach. I have a special obsession for Bach. <laughs> As I mean, we want to we want to persuade people, but I think people probably just should be forced to. It's my only non <laughs> listen to Bach because he's just too good. Um, but that's that's probably unfair. That's unfair. He you don't need to force people if they listen to Bach, they should just love him. So, um, but if 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 our if our view, if our listeners would like to know more about you, Professor Muller, they can go to your website. Again, it's beautiful. He has beautiful photography as well, um, but also the music, a Bach, uh, as well as playing it and his book and governing least a New England libertarianism is is just a, a fantastic, fantastic read. It's delightful. It's easy, um, but substantial. You've just it's a brilliant book. Um, so thank you for for taking time to talk to uh, two Dominicans and share uh, your libertarianism with us and and our and our listeners. Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Uh, thanks to all of our supporters as well. If you'd like to tithe to our work, um, check us out. We're not going to force you. This is we're you know, we're respecting you. Um, no pitchforks here. On you have to go to patreon.com uh, forward slash godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a five star review, all that kind of you know stuff that does stuff. 
visit godsplain.org, our new webs- our new website, which is beautiful, or at least it seems it's not as attractive. It's got some beautiful stuff, though. Check it out. Um, to shop our merchandise and get dates and information for upcoming Godsplaining events as retreats in the summer, this kind of stuff. Um, so just, again, a concluding word of thanks to, uh, to Professor Muller for sharing time with us. And uh, we'll be praying for all of you listening, and you pray for us. And until next time, this has been Godsplaining, Guestplaining with Professor Dan Muller.